0: You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of Conversations and Clarity. Recently named one of Christianity Today's 12 Podcasts You Don't Want to Miss 2021, I'm your host, Marty Duran. I want to talk to you for a minute about my buddy Sam Morris and his leather work. He made me a cool leather journal cover. I use a Loystrom uh, 1917 journal for most of my journaling and my time management, productivity issues, all that kind of stuff, and uh, carries my pencils and a field notes little pad, uh, and he did a fantastic job. He got his start making uh, pastoral or teaching note cover, uh, notebooks, so they're made out of leather. Uh, pastors use them for their preaching notes. Professors use them for their teaching notes, uh, and these things are high quality, and they look fantastic. Now Here's the deal. You can only get him on Twitter. It's at Sam Morris 8, at S-A-M-O-R-R-I-S, numeral 8, at Sam Morris 8 on Twitter. Hit him up. He'll get in contact with you there and give you a quote, uh, and you will not be disappointed in your leather work from Sam. I'm really happy to have uh, Matthew Sorens today. This has been like, this is a dream come true, dude. (laughs)
1: Wow, uh, you might have to set your standards of dreams a little higher, Marty. But I'm happy to be here.
0: <laughs> uh, U.S. Director of Church Mobilization for World Relief. Um, you help churches, especially evangelical churches, understand the realities of refugees and immigration and how to respond in a biblical way. Uh, Serves as a national coordinator for the immigration, evangelical immigration table. Uh, co-author of Seeking Refuge on the Shores of the Global Refugee Crisis. That was back, I guess, when things were uh, more had to do with Syria, um, which is not where we are today. Uh, But I'm really happy that you're here. Matthew Sorens, welcome to Uncommentary.
1: Yeah, I'm glad to be with you.
0: So, um, basically, I just read your bio off the web page, and most everybody probably figured that out <laughs> as I was doing it. So, give us the version of Matthew Sorens that's not on the webpage.
1: Sure. Well, I, uh, I'm originally from Wisconsin. I uh, grew up in a fairly small city in Wisconsin and uh, uh, in a Christian family. And, you know, I've been a, kind of a part of the church basically my whole life, an evangelical church. Um, came down to the Chicagoland area to go to college, at uh, Wheaton College. And uh, while there, I uh, actually did an internship with World Relief in Nicaragua. So oh. with one of our international programs and then came back and started right out of college. Actually, before I even finished uh, at Wheaton with World Relief's local office in Wheaton, Illinois, that uh, does, among other things, refugee resettlement and immigration legal services. And um, did that for a number of years and then um, transitioned to a role focused not primarily on directly serving immigrants with legal mm-hmm. advice, which was my, my role for a number of years, uh, but instead on serving churches and denominational partners. Uh, really this was, you know, I started there in 2006. So it was when president Bush was pushing a big immigration reform bill. And yeah. we suddenly found, we just had a lot of questions uh, from our church partners who, who knew that these immigration issues were important, that they're, you know, they had ramifications for people in their congregations. There were biblical issues. And yet also they knew that they were controversial and they're trying to figure out how do we talk about this in a Mm -hmm. way that, that is faithful to the scriptures that is accurate in terms of the facts of what we're talking about. That is, you know, not breaking any laws Mm -hmm. in terms of how we do ministry. And So that really became my job. And in one form or another, you mentioned the evangelical immigration table. So that's this broader coalition that world relief helped to start. Um, I guess, almost 10 years ago now, wow. along with the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and the National Association of Evangelicals and, and several other national um, evangelical groups. And yeah, I'm, that's basically still my role. I do a lot of consulting with churches and denominations and some speaking. And um, and then on a personal level, I live now in Aurora, Illinois, so about an hour mm-hmm. west of Chicago. Uh, and my wife, Diana, uh, teaches over at Wheaton College, actually. Oh, nice. And we have four children, and cool. they are lots of fun and a little bit exhausting sometimes.
0: <laughs> so, um, so what we're recording today. Uh, this is uh, after President Biden has given a, a second speech related to the situation in Afghanistan. So, we're going to be uh, addressing that in some amount of detail in just a moment. But, uh, but before we get into that, talk about uh, a little bit about the history of refugee resettlement in. At least the recent, maybe from Vietnam War on, uh, I don't know that we have a lot of like actual refugee stuff before that. I know we have a lot of immigration stuff before that. But uh, when it comes onto my radar screen, I'm thinking about the people that came out of Vietnam. So yeah. maybe from that period, uh, just talk about refugee resettlement, uh, even on a global picture, because some people, I think, think that the Americans or the or America. Some Americans think that America is the only country that takes refugees. Um, so clear up some of those misconceptions and then we'll kind of move into what's going on right now.
1: Yeah. So even maybe just to start with a basic definition. So sure. uh, as you said, there's always been immigrants coming, um, not only in the United States, but crossing borders. I mean, going back to the Bible, right? I mean, right. people <laughs> crossing borders, uh, refugees are defined under both U S law and in, in international conventions of the U S is a party to. As individuals who are have fled their country of origin because of a well-founded fear of persecution, that specifically is on account of their race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or social group. Mm. Um, and so, in terms of the U.S., I think again, you, you'd probably have people who met that definition going back throughout U.S. history. But the U.S. affirmed that definition from an international convention in, in the late 1960s, and then put it into U.S. law with the Refugee Act of 1980. Mm. Um, we started seeing large numbers of refugees arriving really with a situation that has an awful lot of parallels to what we're seeing in Kabul right now, when Saigon fell in Mm -hmm. 1975. And at that time, president Ford evacuated, um, I think roughly 130,000 South Vietnamese individuals who were allies of the United States. And Mm -hmm. because we were, um, you know, at the end of that military engagement, they were at risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, evacuated them to Guam, and then most of them within a few weeks were brought to different parts of the United States, often to military bases. Uh, and that's actually the origins of World Relief's work with refugees as wow. well. Um, even before World Relief was actively involved, we've existed since the 40s um, internationally, working with churches overseas. But it was in the mid-70s, there was a, a missionary couple, Grady Neville, and Evelyn Mangum, who are were with the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination, who had served in Vietnam and been planting churches. And they came back to the U.S. a little before, and were serving out of the denominational headquarters in New York state. And then when Saigon fell, like anyone who knew anyone in Vietnam, they got these desperate cries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it wasn't emails at the time. It was telegraphs and phone calls. (laughs) And um, actually very much, I mean, anyone I know who knows anyone in Afghanistan is having the same experience now. Um, But basically people saying, I'm desperate. Can you help me get out? Wow. And they started knocking on every door, door they could, including with the U.S. State Department, and said, we want to help these people and many other people. And they basically called up every church that had ever supported them as a missionary couple and said, you know, you helped us serve the Vietnamese in Vietnam, and now they're coming uh, to your to your community. Can mm-hmm. you meet them at the airport? And when they ran out of churches within their own denomination, basically, they, they came to the National Association of Evangelicals and said, could you help us work with a broader range of evangelical churches? And the NAE said, yes, we can do that through World Relief, which is our humanitarian arm. So World Um, Relief uh, had a a formal relationship with the State Department going back to 1979, mm -hmm. um, taking over some of the work that the Mangums had really started um, even earlier than that. And Grady Mangum was our resettlement director for at least a decade or so. Um, And he's passed on now, um, but his wife, Evelyn, is still alive and lives in Florida. I interviewed her a few years ago for an article I was writing. And I'll just say that if she was half as feisty, you know, 45 years ago as she is in her nineties, I can see how she got some things done because she is just (laughs) a really passionate woman who loves the Lord and loves vulnerable people and doesn't really understand why that wouldn't be obvious to Christians that we should care for refugees.
0: So, um, so that's, um, that's Vietnam, uh, Saigon, um, people are coming here. And then that's happened periodically, and so now we know that there are uh, ceilings that fluctuate, uh, the number of refugees, the number of total immigrants that are coming in, and these change both by year and by um, administration, uh, I guess probably by Secretary of State within certain administrations, but there are a multitude of, of um, factors that lead to those, those decisions, and so Up until um, the Trump years, they were relative. I mean, it was in the tens of thousands up towards uh, hundreds of thousands, 100,000 maybe, and then severely curtailed for a number of years. And now, um, after Joe Biden's been in office for these few months, we're in a crisis situation where the ceiling had not. If it had been raised on paper, it certainly hadn't been raised in functionality, like the ability to get people moved. So now we're in Kabul. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about what you're perceiving as um, the failures of the government to have things in place, what needs to happen. I mean, feel free to go in as many directions as you need to, and then we'll take a break in the middle of it, I'm sure, and come back, but get going.
1: Sure. Sure. You know, just to go back to what you're saying. So uh, I mentioned earlier the Refugee Act, which was signed into law in 1980 by mm-hmm. President Carter. That act, it, refugee resettlement prior to that had been kind of on an ad hoc basis. With the Refugee Act, it was formalized and there was a more of a system put into place. Um, one factor of that was this element of what's called a refugee ceiling. So that's the maximum number of refugees who could come in any given year. Mm-hmm. And the president was given the authority by Congress to set that. Um, the president needs to consult with Congress, but he or she doesn't necessarily need their permission. Mm. So um, in 1980, that refugee ceiling was set at 231,000. So like, it gives wow. you a sense of what our capacity might be if it was that in 1980. Right. Um, at different points in the Reagan administration and the first Bush administration, it was you know above 125,000. Then the a- average level went down a little bit. Um, so if you average it all out over the last 40 years or so, the uh, average refugee ceiling was about 95,000. Most years, that ceiling, they nearly hit. Um, mm-hmm. 2002 was a big exception because after 9-11, um, they put into place a lot of new security processes that mm-hmm. just took longer to get through. And um, But they still actually, I think to his credit, President Bush still set the ceiling. I think it was at the same 70,000 that he had set it for the year before, just mm-hmm. a few weeks after 9-11. Wow. And so honestly, refugee resettlement used to be something that we could just rely on. It was a bipartisan thing. It didn't really change much from one administration to another. Of course, it changed based on the circumstances. So, you know, the South Sudanese lost boys came and there was, you know, that was one group, the the people coming out of former Yugoslavia or the former Soviet Union, Uh, obviously the Southeast Asia with the Vietnamese and the Hmong and the Cambodians before that, Um, that obviously did change. As you said, under the Trump administration, Uh, president trump really significantly lowered uh, the refugee ceiling cut it in half in the first week he was in office and then lowered it subsequently every single year down to a historic low of 15,000 for uh, the last fiscal year president biden actually in his first few months in office reaffirmed that 15,000 refugee ceiling which was frankly kind of shocking to us because Mm. that was not what he'd said during the campaign he would do right and during those first few months of the Biden administration there, you know, they weren't doing what we thought they needed to be doing to really rebuild the refugee program as had been committed during the campaign. And then after some pushback, and I think we tried to help lead some of that pushback, but it was pretty broad from, Mm -hmm. you know, from the right and the left from different Christian groups and other religious groups. uh, The president reset the refugee ceiling for the current fiscal year at Mm 62,500 and has said that next fiscal year, it'll be set at 125,000. But as you said, at the moment, we're nowhere near hitting 62,500. Uh, we oh. will almost certainly end this fiscal year at the lowest level of refugee settlement um, since the Refugee Act was signed in
0: 1980.
1: Wow. Uh, some of that is related to COVID, for sure. I mean, this has obviously been an unusual year for everyone. But it also, as a result, you know, to kind of share the blame, the Trump administration a year or a year and a half ago was not beginning the vetting process that Mm -hmm. that we do have, contrary to what some people might've heard. Refugees are not randomly showing up. They are invited by the U S state department. It's a very small share of the world's refugees who are even considered for a settlement. So the UN estimates there's 26 and a half million refugees in the world right now. And we're on track to settle probably fewer than 10,000 this year, Mm. which even in a normal year, if we settled, you know, 75,000 or 80,000, we're talking, less than one half of 1% of the world's refugees whom the U S would take in a normal year. Those individuals go through this vetting process. It takes a long time in general. And that's, um, you know, that's why if the Trump administration didn't start that process a year ago, there's not the people in that pipeline per se to come today. Yeah. So I also don't think the Biden administration has show, I mean, they could do more to speed up that process if they wanted to put the resources and attention there. Yeah. And then that brings us to the question on Afghanistan. So Obviously, um, just we're recording this. It's been less than a week since Kabul fell. That happened faster than I think at least the Biden administration seems to have expected. Mm -hmm. But we've known that the U.S. military was going to be pulled out from Afghanistan for many months. And when we knew that, you know, at World Relief, we're not going to take a position on if the U.S. military should be in Afghanistan or not. That's not really our lane. But it was pretty clear if the U.S. military is leaving, we need some sort of a plan to make sure that the people who will be at risk because of their service to the U.S. military as translators or to other parts of the U.S. governmental mission in Afghanistan are able to get out uh, before, frankly, it's too late for them to get out. And we suggested, along with a really broad range of different religious groups and um, members of Congress from both parties, veterans groups, national security experts, we basically all suggested, well, why don't you do what President Ford did and bring people to Guam? I mean, if you can bring them to the United States because they're approved and ready to go, that's great. But if you need a little bit more time to vet them, we understand that. Get them to Guam and you can process them there. But at least they'll be out and they'll be safe from the Taliban, which is likely to reemerge as the government of Afghanistan and which we know is likely to want to seek retribution for those who served alongside what they see as a foreign invader. Right. And that the Biden administration did not heed that counsel. And then Kabul fell more quickly than than apparently they expected. And now we're in the circumstance where the last remaining territory that the United States controls is the airport in Kabul. And of course, the Taliban has checkpoints around the airport, so it's not easy to get to the airport, even if you happen to be in Kabul, which many of the people who are needing to get out are not. Mm -hmm. The population we've really been focused on in particular is um, roughly 18,000 individuals who have pending cases for what's called a special immigrant visa. Yeah. Uh, the special immigrant visa or an SIV is something that was created by Congress kind of as a parallel process to the refugee or settlement track. It, it technically doesn't count towards that refugee ceiling, mm-hmm. um, but it's people who are fleeing a credible field of persecution. They don't need to have left the country. Unlike refugees in most cases, they can mm-hmm. be processed within the country, but it is specifically for Afghans as well as Iraqis who serve the U S military or other parts of the U S government and are at risk for that reason. So there's about 18,000 pending cases Plus their immediate family members. So we could be talking 75 to hundred thousand people potentially. Wow. And only a, a, my understanding is about 2000 of them have been evacuated in the last mm-hmm. several weeks. And we have received a number of those families. I should say, I mean, world relief has taken in. We've received more than 6,000, uh, special immigrant visa recipients in the last five years. So at a fairly steady pace, mm-hmm. A lot of those folks, for whatever reason, the Afghans in particular, have gone to California, Sacramento, and Modesto, but other parts of the U.S. as well. Um, but now the circumstances, the U.S. is basically frantically trying to figure out if they can get those people out, mm. and it's really horrible stories we're hearing from Afghanistan, and we're hearing it often from their relatives who've already been resettled to the United States right. in years past. Um, but they're, you know, they can't access the airport, or they're not clear where if they're supposed to go to the airport. Um, it's just been really chaotic mm-hmm. and obviously most people have seen the, the television images of that. Um, but our position, I mean, I think it's fair to say we're frustrated with the Biden administration.
0: Yeah,
1: and To be really clear, we were pretty pr- frustrated with the Trump administration <laughs> on refugee issues as well. So we're bipartisan in our critique. Um, you know, our guide on this is we think these are human lives made in the image of God that we have an mm-hmm. obligation to, to protect and a particular obligation. I mean, so there's many Afghans who unfortunately will be at risk, but a particular obligation to those to whom our nation made a commitment uh, because of their, you know, we asked them to serve our country, something I've never done. And mm-hmm. probably most of our, the people listening have not personally done. And we promised that we would protect them and their families. And we can't, um, we can't bail on that commitment. Not only as a matter of integrity as a nation and a matter of justice, but also frankly, just as a matter of national security and foreign policy. Yeah. I mean, the, you, you, if you if we, as a nation fail on that promise, we will likely never find anyone who wants to come alongside us in a military intervention for generations because people will not forget that.
0: Talking to Matthew Sorens, he's with world relief and uh, we're talking about the immigration or the refugee crisis uh, in Afghanistan It's being um, uh, precipitated by our by U.S. withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan. And we'll be right back after this. So what does it take to keep uncommentary on the air? Uh, Technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, There's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. And there's not a lot more. But nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room in their home. Uh, It's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, If you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20 ounce Coke one time a month and you can become a, a $2 a month contributor, supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an Uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug, uh, and these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got, like, money to spare – and you want to give 250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentary pod or. Patreon is monthly, and these are uh, auto drafts, so you don't have to write checks, you don't have to worry about it, you don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the two dollars is gone, the three dollars is gone, and really, uh, you never miss it. So that's Patreon.com/slash/uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode, uh, Matthew. There's a couple of things I want you to address, uh, and we'll go in this order. Um, or we'll go in reverse order. So the second thing I want you to address is what happens when a refugee gets into America, the process that takes place, how they find a place to live, and all that kind of stuff. The first thing I want you to address is what happens before they get to America. You alluded to this when you said it takes a long time to vet people, and I know that there are people in America who who really do think that those pictures of 640 people on a C7 or C5 or whatever it is um, took off from Kabul and had midair refueling you know and they landed in locust grove georgia and just dumped all those people out on a runway of a one you know little grass airstrip and then those people are within 15 minutes they're all on food stamps and getting social security and so can you explain uh first how that vetting process works and then second what happens when they land here
1: yeah um that's not how it works <laughs> <But laughs> that concern as well um first of all I'd say just let me normally how it works and what the process is and obviously this is not a totally normal situation um but the the refugee process is usually based on the United States government takes referrals either from the State Department for particular categories of people like um you know like uh, particular ethnic groups that have faced persecution or particular religious groups. So a lot of refugees actually are persecuted Christians Um, Mm -hmm. over the last 10 years. The plurality of refugees resettled to the US have been Christians more than those of any other religious background. Um, But so they are either referred by the State Department or often by the United Nations. Uh, But the US government doesn't just take the UN's word for anything. They then begin an individual vetting process for each individual being considered. That vetting process, um, groups like the Heritage Foundation have examined and said it is the most thorough vetting that our country has for any category of visitor or immigrant coming into the United States. Wow. So it's, it's frankly, it's been a little confusing to me how there's been so much focus on refugees in particular when they're already the most vetted. I mean, not mm-hmm. that we should be afraid of tourists coming in on tourist visas because they go through some basic vetting as well, but refugees go through a much more thorough process Both to prove that they indeed are a refugee, that they're a victim, you know, they're Mm. incredibly fearing persecution for those reasons under the law, but also that in no way a national security or a public health threat. Anyway, that process usually takes somewhere between a year and a half and three years to complete. And again, just for that very small share of 1% who are ever being considered for a settlement to the United States, Mm. the average refugee in the world isn't even, you know, you know, be on the list for possibility to reside. Right. They're likely to stay in a camp for a decade or two decades, or maybe live mm-hmm. in a city in a neighboring country. Um, but for those who are selected, that settlement process, the, the vetting process happens, it's incredibly effective. And I think this is important to highlight because it's a misconception for a lot of folks. Um, since that Refugee Act was signed in 1980, there's been more than 3 million refugees resettled to the United States. About 300,000 of those have come through World Relief. Mm-hmm. And not a single one of the three million has taken the life of an American citizen in a terrorist attack. That's actually a pretty great record. Yeah, it is. Not to say that they're all perfect people or that we can't constantly be improving that vetting process. And certainly we have since the 1980 Refugee Act. Um, But it does say that, you know, I think a lot of Christians have been so focused on the question of, is the government doing their job? Mm -hmm. And frankly, not looking very hard for the right answer to that, that we've forgotten to ask the question of who is my neighbor. And yeah. to be the people there at the airport to welcome people. Um, now, with the current situation is, of course, this is a challenge, right? There's not a year and a half to wait for a vetting process for individuals who need to get out of Kabul, out of Afghanistan immediately. Mm-hmm. Now, some of them have already been waiting three years, so yeah. they might be at the very end of that process. And and I should say the special immigrant visa process, it's technically um, kind of parallel to the refugee or settlement process, but the vetting is very similar. Mm-hmm. And if anything... Um, you know there's more layers of vetting because they have to verify with your military supervisor and that sort of thing that you indeed qualify for this visa. Yeah. But those individuals, if they if they can be approved now, they've met all the requirements, they could bring them right to the United States. And some of those, you know, we have had some arriving in the United States, not in huge numbers, but in slightly increased numbers in the last few weeks. Um but if they're not at that point of approval, what we have said is that they should take them to a safe third location so again Mm -hmm. we suggested guam just like president ford did president clinton did the same thing with the kurds in in the 90s Uh, at this point it seems like the biden administration is taking people to qatar um possibly to other locations but you know that for example the photo that i think a lot of people saw filled with people yeah from what i understand that went to qatar you know and, and there's a lot of people now basically being further processed. And, you know, we have not been saying in any way that the U S should cut corners on vetting. What we are saying is it's really not an option to leave people there for our bureaucratic processes to, to carry on. We need to get them out to a safe location. Mm -hmm. And again, these are people who've already been background checked and vetted before they were serving as a translator with embedded with the U S military, you know, like they don't just randomly put people (laughs) in those roles without already doing some pretty serious background checks. Um, One of my colleagues was saying, you know, he's, he's some of the special immigrant visa holders whom their offices resettled has literally like shaken the hands of the president, you know, like, they they don't let you get that close without some pretty serious security checks. Um, So it's, but still, we're not, you know, that said, it's still, we want people, we want our government to do a thorough vetting, of course, Mm -hmm. and when they do so, then people can come to the United States. And that's to your second question, which is, well, what happens when you get here? And this is true whether you come on a special immigrant visa or through the kind of the normal refugee resettlement settlement process. The U.S. government, and this is all laid out in the Refugee Act of 1980, works with nonprofit organizations who um, basically take over once that refugee arrives in the United States. Uh, and even before that, because we'll get noticed from the State Department, you know, we've got an Iraqi family of six showing up. In Nashville, or we've got a Burmese family of three showing up in Aurora, Illinois. And World Relief is one of nine agencies nationally, at least currently and for many years, that have worked with the State Department. Most of those are faith based organizations. So, actually, the Catholic Church is the largest of those resettlement organizations. World Relief is is still um, owned and affiliated with the National Association of Evangelicals. There's a Jewish group, a mainline Protestant group, an Episcopal group, some non sectarian groups. Uh, But the the process basically looks the same in any case. Basically we, uh, as a world relief, for example, we have a network at this point, it's about 15 local offices around the country. Mm-hmm. It was closer to 25, um, six years ago before yeah. the dramatic reduction of refugee resettlement settlement under the Trump administration. But we are responsible for setting up an apartment, furnishing the apartment, meeting that family at the airport, Uh, helping them get their social security card and other legal documents, Mm -hmm. helping them get a job for, for adults, at least. Um, Ideally, uh, I mean, we usually have enough funding to help cover rent for people for maybe two to three months. Mm -hmm. And then we need them to be uh, able to cover their own rent in the vast majority of cases. So it's a pretty fast turnaround to getting people into a job and economically self-sufficient, obviously also getting kids into school. Um, People need help finding language uh, classes to learn English and cultural adjustment support, uh, mental health support. Um, A lot of people have gone through a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. And then the other, so that's what any resettlement agency does um, with this, you know, in coordination with the U.S. State Department. One thing that I think is, um, it's not unique to World Relief, but it's very important to World Relief. It's probably true of the other resettlement agencies to some extent as well. But our mission at World Relief has never been to resettle refugees well or to help immigrants to integrate into the community, though we want to do those things really well our mission is to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. So our goal is at every spot in that process, you know, we want it to be a local church that's helped us find that apartment and furnish it. And, you know, with pots and pans and household materials and toothbrushes and all that, um, to have a team of volunteers from the church, ideally be there right from the arrival at the airport, welcome people and then really commit to walking alongside them for at least the first several months that they're in the country. We we call that a good neighbor team, um, And we see it as, you know, it's what a lot of refugees have told us they most needed when they got here is friendship. Like they needed someone who was going to bear with them through some language barriers and some awkward cultural misunderstandings and help them to adjust to life in a new place.
0: Now, let me me jump in right here. Are these um, are these good neighbor groups or can they form in cities where world relief doesn't have a presence?
1: Um. I mean, we we aren't necessarily in the capacity to help you form that or connect you to a family that's arriving, but certainly, I mean, a team from a church could get together. And most of the resettlement agencies, and so resettlement doesn't happen in every community, but it mm-hmm. happens in a lot of communities. Most of them are very eager for for partnerships with local churches and volunteers. Um, so they may or may not call it a good neighbor team, but mm-hmm. I mean, I think most of them have volunteer opportunities for individuals or, or groups of individuals to connect to a refugee family as Got they're you. arriving.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, continue. I think you were about to say something else.
1: Well, just, you know, we see this as such an opportunity for the church to, I mean, part of my job is reminding churches why biblically and even missiologically, uh, we should be the first people to sign up to be there at the airport to welcome Mm -hmm. people that God has this love for the vulnerable that is on display throughout the scriptures. And specifically it's the foreigner along with the orphan and the widow that get mentioned in the same passages over Mm -hmm. and over again. We have you know, heroes of our faith, starting with Jesus himself who experienced fleeing persecution and crossing a border into another country, which I think ought to give us a particular concern for people in a similar circumstance today. And I mean, Jesus in Matthew 25 says that basically how we treat the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the prisoner and the sick is how we treat him. Um, It's also a unique opportunity to stand with the persecuted church because frankly, a lot of refugees, are you know we talk about you to be a refugee by definition you're fleeing persecution. For many of them, not all, but many, the persecution they they've fled was targeted at them because of their Christian faith. Um, if you look at the Burmese refugees, who've actually been the number one country of origin for refugees resettled to the U.S. in the last decade, the seventy um, percent of them have been Christians, largely Baptists wow. and Anglicans, um, some Catholics. And it is their faith in Jesus that is a significant factor kind of alongside their ethnic identity in some cases that has run afoul of the military government in Burma. Mm. Or even among like the Iraqis, they're majority Muslim, but 30% of the Iraqis who've been resettled are of a Christian tradition. Mm. And that's why, I mean, that's often a, a primary factor in why they're facing persecution in Iraq. Yeah. I would also say, though, it's also, you have people who come in with a vibrant Christian faith and frankly have some things to teach American Christians about how to follow Jesus. You also have people who don't know Jesus who are resettled. And that will Mm -hmm. probably be the case with the significant majority of of Afghans. Certainly has been the case with most Afghans resettled up to this point. Um, You know, some people, I think if we're honest, some Christians, that's their real problem with refugee resettlement. Like if they knew it was all Burmese Baptists, they'd probably be okay with it. But it's <laughs> the idea that it's Syrian Muslims coming in or yeah. Afghan Muslims or Somali Muslims or maybe, you know, Bhutanese Hindus or whatever. Mm. But people who are different from us religiously. Sure. I think a few things I would say to that. One is if you look at that command from Jesus to love our neighbors ourselves, you know, the lawyer in, in Luke chapter 10 follows up, well, who is my neighbor? He wants this precise legal definition. And Jesus instead tells the story of the Good Samaritan, Mm -hmm. who was ethnically and religiously different than the Jewish person beaten up on the side of the road to Jericho, whom he has assisted. So it's pretty clear that our command to love our neighbor is not just for those who are like us, Mm -hmm. even on a religious level. And then on a missional level, I mean, a lot of our churches are really focused on the Great Commission of making disciples of all nations. I think we should be focused on that. Jesus left us with that commission. But we've missed something really profound if we don't notice that God in His sovereignty has sent the nations to the United States mm. to this context where we are blessed with religious freedom, where unlike many of the countries that refugees are fleeing from, we are free to share our faith, and people are free to receive it or to reject it. Mm-hmm. And, and to be really clear, we, we draw a pretty clear line between proselytism, which we don't do, which is any sort of like a a coercive effort to ch- convert someone, right. or just like a you know a pressure sales Even pitch, an overt, yeah, but. And evangelism, which is a, a purely open invitation to a relationship with Christ.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And often that's going to come in in response to a question, because when it's a team from a church who meets a family at the airport and, and genuinely loves them as themselves, which we're called to do, whether they would ever share our faith or not. right? But when we do that well, it's rare that sooner or later, there's not some questions about, you know, why? Why yeah. do you love us so much? Yeah. And we get to, it, as First Peter 3 says, to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is within you and, to how, do so with um, and respect.
0: So how, uh, for folks who are listening, how can they, you mentioned the good neighbor team, um, are there financial ways that people can help? Are there political ways? In other words, contacting a state representative or a Senator, what are some of the practical things that people can do if they want to be involved?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that question. Um, if you go to WorldRelief.org. um, You'll see right now, of course, that's Afghanistan on the front of our yeah. website. Uh, frankly, along with a uh, crisis we're responding to in Haiti, which would probably be bigger news if it wasn't for the crisis in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Afghanistan thing is right there. And there's three basic ways we're asking people to respond. One is by volunteering. And that's you, it'll bring you to the list of our U.S. offices. So unfortunately, mm-hmm. not in every community, but in a good number of communities around the United States. Um, in addition to volunteering, I would say those local offices need like in-kind donations, like furniture, household supplies. And then a huge need right now, frankly, is we need landlords who want to rent to people who don't have good credit. Oh, I mean, wow. That's always yeah. been a challenge. But with a, if, if we do get a lot of Afghans arriving, which we are hoping and praying we will, um, the housing market is actually kind of tough right now, especially mm. in some of the communities where most of the Afghans want to go, like Sacramento or Chicagoland. Mm. And, you know, we can help cover their rent for three months. We've most of the landlords we work with love refugees and find that they're amazing tenants who pay their rent on time and you know don't have criminal problems or things like that. But it does require a landlord willing to take a chance on someone who's not going to come in with a good credit score
0: or yeah. any credit score or any credit score. Yeah.
1: Um, so that's one way. Sue would be financial support. Um, the the refugee resettlement has always been a public private partnership. So World Relief gets some some funding from the State Department that helps mm-hmm. us cover the rent for the first few months and helps cover a caseworker but frankly it doesn't come near to covering uh, how we would want to serve people well mm-hmm. so we need to raise support from churches and individuals um, one way that people can do that and you can find this on our website as well is something we call the path which is just our monthly giving community where people can you know reliably uh, be a part of the work that we're doing both in the U.S. and then globally as well and then a the third thing and in some ways maybe I would start with this right now would, would be advocacy I mean we will be continuing to receive refugees one way or the other but the number that can come, and especially how many of those who can get out of Afghanistan right now, is a policy decision. And um, some of those things, there's a congressional dynamic right now. It's really in the hands of President Biden, uh, although there's value in reaching out to your members of Congress and telling them to put pressure on the president because um, they might have a cell phone and I don't.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, but
1: um, You know, honestly, like it, there's probably 100,000 people who we think ought to be able to to be evacuated out of Afghanistan again, not to all come to the United States immediately, but Mm -hmm. to finish their processing and eventually in the next several months and year or so come to the U S but they need to be able to get to the airport right now. And that's, we've had so many people have trouble with that. Um, And so we've really been pushing on the Biden administration to say, you know, we don't know how you're going to do it, but you need to use the strength of the United States to make sure that these people can get out, move heaven and earth to make sure that we do not leave them behind.
0: Yeah. Now you're on Twitter. Is it, uh, what's your handle on Twitter?
1: It's just my full name. So Matthew Sorens S O E R E N S.
0: All right, man. Thanks so much for hanging out today. This is, um, it's heavy stuff, but it's necessary stuff. And, uh, you've provided some good clarifying, uh, information for people who have ears to hear and, um, we'll continue to, to do what we can. And, uh, hopefully we'll see some, some resettlement. That comes our way and uh, we get some folks out of harm's way. Yeah. Thank you, Marty. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duren. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or Castbox, whichever one you use. If you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uncom- uh, on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the, uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, solideo gloria. This is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast.